0: welcome to the stories or soul food podcast with your hosts brian cole and best-selling author n d wilson this audio is brought to you by cannonball books and great homeschool conventions
1: Stories are soul food. Another day, another episode. We don't have to do the number anymore. I was strictly warned from saying the number out front. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to talk about chef school today. Chef school. And uh, for that, we have on a very esteemed guest. That's Jess Hall. Jesse Hall. Welcome, Jess Hall. He is many things to many people. But for our purposes, (laughs) (laughs) for our purposes today, I remembered I realized. For our purposes today, he's our guest. Yeah, he's our guest. And Brian's boss. Yeah, absolutely. He's the CEO of Canon Press, Cannonball Books, No Air Science. what's your official title at the Camperdown?
0: Assistant Director.
1: Assistant Director, okay. And he is the Assistant Director at the Camperdown Writer's Kiln for aspiring- MFA and Creative Writing, apply now. Yeah, A New (laughs) St. Andrews at which- CamperdownMFA.com. There we go, perfect, get (laughs) it in there. Nate is our our founder, right? (laughs) And scene, we're done with the episode, right? Episode has completed. (laughs) So what are we talking about? we're, We're talking about culinary school. So if you are supposed to create stories that feed souls and, you know, everybody says chefs need to know salt, fat, acid, heat, what do writers need to know? So this is basically an episode for people who want to tell stories a little more. I think so, but I think it also helps you evaluate your own books. So the books that your kids are reading, I think that's kind of what I'm looking at. So thinking it's for, like a creator, right? Thinking like an author, so as opposed to thinking like a consumer. Thinking like someone who's helping to set the trend of children's books in the future, Rather, either either as a reader or as a creator. Sure. But if we jump back to I think episode four when we had your father on, that's one of the first things he said. Hey, if you want to if you want to raise a writer, you must raise a reader. So I think we're yeah. keep, we're picking up. Picking up there.
2: There. So, and also a couple of things to make this more general, when you are, when we're talking about writing stories or telling stories, even if we're not hoping to do that professionally for money, everybody is a storyteller. You can't get out of that. So, you're telling a story with your life. You're telling a story. You're telling stories to your children. Hopefully, you're reading with them. You're telling them stories about your own existence, their grandparents, their history, the history of the world, Adam and Eve, on through. You're the cur- You are the curators of narrative and storytelling. So, even if you're not looking to do it professionally and go get your book published and make money, uh, this is still hopefully going to be helpful for you. Yeah. Also, as a reader, if you know the mechanics of what goes into making a story, you can be far more observant and intelligent about your criticism. Yeah, You know, what's what's wrong with something, what's right about something, uh, the lights can come on for you a little bit, you know, a little bit more if you think like an author, even if you are not one. Yeah. So, that said, I'm going to say the thing that got me started... As an author, as a storyteller, it was my dad banning, complaining about books, and I've told the story in various places. But I would fuss. And, you know, this was my phase of only reading The Two Towers and parts of Narnia, <laughs> and I would just revisit the same old stuff over and over and over again. I didn't want to read anything else. And those books I was reading for school, I would just complain about mightily. So books like Where the Red Fern Grows and My Side of the Mountain, and all those middle grade classics that get forced on you as a young boy in a good school. And I hated them because there were no Nazgul, no orcs, none of that. It was just all wrong. That's why I would complain at the dinner table and my father actually banned it. I'm shocked that he would ban my fussing, But uh, (laughs) he banned complaining and said, you cannot complain about a book unless you have a creative suggestion for how to make it better, for how to correct it. And so, I was no longer allowed to just say, I hate this book or it's boring. I had to say, the beginning of this book is slow and here's how I would accelerate. That's great. It. He was doing that just to make me not be such a downer at the dinner table. He wasn't thinking consciously of making me an author, but it did force me to think like one and it was a matter of one year maybe. Uh, I think I think he put that rule in place in 5th grade and by 6th grade I had resolved to be an author. Just be going, careful with that rule. Yeah, just go yeah, <laughs> just going through that process, going through the process of thinking through approaching the stuff on the page like it's not sacred and it could be changed and it could be improved and what would make it better and what would I do if I were in charge of the words and it gave me a completely new critical apparatus that eventually led into a creative apparatus that caused me to write. But uh, it's something it's something we do with our own, our candidates at the MFA. <laughs> Question for you. yeah, Kind of off topic, but as you were going through that process, yeah, I think
0: I've heard that your dad didn't publish his first book until he was about 40. Is that right?
2: I think so.
1: Yeah. I think so so yeah. Uh,
0: were you inspired to write also because that was about when he was
2: starting to write? No, actually it was weirder because I he wasn't telling he wasn't writing stories as much. He wrote me one that was actually a really big deal to me. And it was a story about my namesake heading home from, you know, baseball practice and killing a goblin with my bat and then getting sucked into an underworld. And it was this really like formative thing that he but he never tried to go get it published that I know he just wrote it for me. And that was, that was it. And it was awesome. <laughs> but the thing that really made me want to write was it was Tolkien, it was Lewis, and it was the process of discovering other stories that I had not known about, you know, King Solomon's minds and other things and starting to think that way. And it wasn't until high school. Well, dad did it first in eighth grade where he made me write a short story because I was talking about wanting to write. So he just basically said, here's your pencil, like, go write something. You have to do it. You can't just want it. And did so more and more. So by the end of my high school career, he was forcing me into writing I was not interested in doing. And that is where I wrote my first short stories were published in Credenda Agenda under duress.
1: (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, as a senior in high school and then I in, remember reading college. those. I, I would scan the credendos for stories. And so <laughs> I would occasionally find one or two yeah. small sketches yeah. from a certain so, Nathan Wilson. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, that, those were published through my college
2: and grad school years. And then that kind of came to an end on the other end of that of uh, I was publishing pretty quickly thereafter. So I'm sure it played in because it was something he was working on at the same time, but it wasn't something I was super aware of. You know, he was writing The Fruit of the Cross and he was writing theology and I didn't really equate the two endeavors with me wanting to write Lord of the Rings.
1: Jess and Nate, is that kind of one of the first skills you look for? If someone's trying to write, they have to do it. Yeah, that's exactly what I was just going to say. It's the, a matter of not just only
0: doing it, but being willing to do it to throw it away. Yep. And move on to the next thing and do something else and then just put it to the side and just keep doing stuff that no one will ever see for years. Yeah,
2: or hopefully ever. Right. I mean, like as you grow and as you develop, you look back and you think, I hope no one ever publishes my unpublished works because these are awful.
1: (laughs) So not everything you create is worth creating. You got to practice. There's a lot of ruined soufflés before you get the good one, Uh, I guess. Yes. A lot of ruined soufflés if we're going with the cooking analogy or
2: we Which we are. Which we are. (laughs) uh, Or putting up shots. If somebody wants to be a basketball player, like you have to assume you're going to miss a shot in the gym by yourself. You're going to miss a lot of shots. In order to make shots, so and then you need somebody to look at the game film with you, right? Using that analogy, somebody who says, "Hey, maybe don't cock your head to the side while you're shooting, or twist your body. Keep your eyes open. (laughs) Yeah, keep your (laughs) eyes open. Don't contort your body." But the one of the hardest things about people who start out telling stories is when they receive that criticism, or if it doesn't work, they take it incredibly personally because we do have this weirdly romantic self expression mythology around writing. So, if somebody doesn't care for your short story or for your novel, then they don't care for you. They don't like you. Now, my wife has told me this about my nonfiction, where she said, it's really funny to me, if somebody doesn't like notes from the tilt World, they just don't like you. <laughs> it really is. It really is a personal thing. They take you personally, they don't like you, which is funny. But for fiction, it really can't be that way. You have to be willing to write stuff and have it be trash and have you think it's trash and have other people think it's trash too. As you try to get better, and then you write something else, and they say this is better trash. This is a little. This is a little improved. It's in this- the top of the
1: dumpster, but still, still some work
2: to yeah, do. Yeah, you've now you've now moved to the next difficult thing that you don't know how to do. You've gotten past that one, and now you have to move on to the next one.
1: So the
0: advice to a young writer possibly would be: That's great. Good job. Yeah. There's things to improve, and you could go over the things to improve, but then don't fix it. Just go write a new
2: one. Yeah. Right. And I've I've had that conversation with. Aspiring novelists often, and when they say, "Hey, so I've been working on this novel since I was 15," and I say, "Stop it! Right? Stop! Stop doing laps through that. Set it aside and go write something else. Take every lesson you've learned and go write something else." That's always like a warning sign for applicants
0: for the MFA program. It's like I've been working on this thing for the last 10 years, yep. and I really want to do a program and get it done. And it's like, nope. Mm, how about yeah. you? If yeah. it's good, maybe we'll we'll think about it, consider it, but. Yeah. If you come, you got to do something new. Yep.
2: You know? So, if you if you are looking for a writer who is somebody we could actually help, you know, help get to right. a place, they have to have laid down a fair amount of experience. They already have to write, meaning we, we can't have somebody come to the MFA program and they have to learn how to put words on the page. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they should yeah. already know how to put words on the page. The question is, you know, skill, deafness, arrangement, what's going to actually happen with those words on the page, structure, that kind of thing.
1: We recognize that problem in lots of other areas. People who are afraid to take the first step and so never take the step at all. It does seem like you have to be willing to step and then, you know, twist the ankle a bit or restart. I guess might be the way to throw it away.
2: Of, yeah. The first novel I ever wrote called The Seventh Sneeze, may it never be published. <laughs> <laughs> but it's my favorite, one of my favorite titles, right behind Super <laughs> um, <laughs> What about this, right behind? You have to Yeah. Do that right no, behind. No, I think Super <laughs> and and the Seventh Sneeze are my favorite titles. But I wrote it, I printed it out, I held it in my hands for maybe, I don't know. A minute, thirty seconds, and dropped the whole thing in a trash can. And then I wrote a list of everything I hated about it, <laughs> and I taped that list above on the wall above my computer screen. And I started the next one, which That's is like awesome. E-.
1: And it's Was just the printing it out some closure. Was that is that how you're reviewing it? You printed it out just to, or you want hated that tree, that particular you can see tree. See all
0: your words. Yeah, I, I, can see, I Yeah, <laughs> I held it.
1: And actually, I think it got passed
2: around. A few people read it. My sister read it. She passed it to some friends. And I was just like, uh, uh, <laughs> drop it in the trash can, done, like done. And then
1: I actually did steal stuff from it. Some things I liked about it showed up in cupboards. So how can a reader kind of approaching books apply that rule, the rule of being a trash can, the trash can. It, the trash <laughs> I mean, I guess it's maybe straightforward. Is
2: this making me better? You know, is this making me a better human? Is this making me a better reader? I mean, it could be as simple as, is this what I should be doing with my Tuesday afternoon? (laughs) You know, it's just, it's not that complicated to say, I am not being improved by this. I am not being fed by this. And so, I should use my time in other ways. Yeah.
0: It says the kid that's telling his mom, I don't need to read The Red Fern, Where the Red Fern Grows. (laughs) I'm not improving, mom. (laughs) (laughs) Go back to Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Uh, Yes.
2: And then then, uh, my dad says, go tell me what would be better about Where the Red Fern Grows what would you do? And of course, it's always something like add pirates.
0: So, as a parent, always leading to the conversation. Yep. Mm,
1: Yeah. That's good. I was thinking when I was thinking top skills of beginning authors, you do get that sense of somebody who sees. When you read a book that helps you see something. Yeah. Observers. Observers in a different way than you have before. You know, that doesn't apply necessarily so much to kids' stories because there's another level, but I think it does. Are you a (laughs) seer? Do you notice stuff?
2: Yeah, something I put in uh, the fantastical wordcraft thing with those little episodes, little writing instructional episodes. Of course, you can find on canonpress.com. Yeah. (laughs) Another corporate, but brought to you by- Andy Wilson's School School of Fantastical Fantastical Wordcraft. Wordcraft. One of the episodes is called Seers and Sayers. Yeah, there you go. Because part one is observation, the ability to distill and capture what's actually happening in a moment, and then you need to be able to vicariously transfer it to somebody else. So, and this goes, a lot of you writers out there, I've actually heard from a number of people who are listening to this, who are authors, who are published authors, and who are struggling because they've always played by ear, they say, and they might have a lot of talent to play by ear. But you have to consciously think about the fact that you're doing experience transfer. You're going to capture an experience and give it to somebody else vicariously. And in accessing their imaginations and giving it to their imaginations, make it permanent. So, you know, put it in there forever. So, do you have the ability to sit in your front yard and really observe and really absorb what's happening through all your senses and then can you distill that in wordcraft and transfer it to somebody else? So, can they read a paragraph that you wrote and feel as if they were there? Like it becomes their own experience, you've gifted it to them, you've captured it and now you've given it to them. And I, I tell every aspiring writer to start with creative nonfiction, to do that, to sit in your front yard and capture real moments, and then give them to other people and see not what they tell you, but you can gauge for yourself whether or not they have experienced that moment the way you did. What did they get out of it? And then later, when you move to fiction, you now know how to construct a moment. Like you've observed enough real moments that you start to observe one in your imagination. You know that you actually have to fill in the smells. You have to fill in the ta- you know the tactile piece, distant sounds. You know the sound of a lawnmower a block and a half away you know that you have to grab these concrete details that are what make scenes real in this world. So, starting with nonfiction is re- was really helpful to me. That was my own path, it was a lot of little nonfiction sketches because it also enabled me to know when I had failed. So, if this is a failure. It was easier to gauge than when I was describing a dragon or something. Right.
0: But even when you move to that fictional world, you
2: still use all those senses. Absolutely. You have to in order to make the imaginary feel real. So if you're describing a dragon fighting, you know, some bold child, and afterwards you'll find out that as you fail in that description, you modify your imagination. And so early, you know, young writers and amateur writers and people just getting started will modify the bullseye to be where the arrow
1: hit. You know, so you mean like changing how magical it was because you can't quite capture it? No, you see something, you sense something, but you can't quite capture it. With
2: your words, and so you oh, okay. change what you see. So you've imagined a scene, and then you fail to <laughs> capture that scene, and so you reimagine <laughs> that scene into success. <laughs> so, I laugh because you see it all the time. Right? All well, the time, see it. <laughs> yeah. And, I, yeah. and so the weirdest part is they often will still hold that that
1: original in their heads. That's what they wrote. To yeah, them to them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Jess and I were talking about how easy it is when you critique something of somebody else's for them to say, "But what I meant was." And that, thats one what of the I most. What I was getting at was yeah. One of the most difficult things to help somebody improve is when they do the but what I was getting at move <laughs> because th- there's no way to get at the page.
2: So let's and this is one of those things where it's so tied in personal identity that people have thin skins and they think of it as part of themselves that you're criticizing when it's not. Yeah. It is not. Yep. It is an, a thing external to yourself that you've created and you've handed to somebody else. It is no more part of yourself than that shot. That you took in the basketball, you know, basketball gym, or that chocolate chip cookie that you baked. Listen, the air ball isn't your soul. Yeah. So if you <laughs> accidentally swap in salt for sugar in your chocolate chip cookies, and then we point out that it's bad, <laughs> we're not insulting you. We should all be able to laugh together. And if you say, "Well, what I meant was for this to be a really sweet, <laughs> wonderful <laughs> chocolate chip cookie," the answer is, we really don't care what you meant. Uh, if somebody shoots a three pointer and misses. It doesn't help to tell people I meant to make that like, right, of course you did. We all do. Everybody means to do it well. The question is whether or not you in fact
1: did. Mm. So... That's such a good rule for parents because we've talked about this before, but you see yourself judging judging your tone. I meant to correct in love and patience. <laughs> Instead, I snapped and was irritated. And yeah. well, of course you did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you failed. You missed. Yeah. I didn't mean... I didn't mean
2: to be upset or I didn't mean to speak harshly is irrelevant. The question is whether or not you did. So that's, a great and that's, rule for and that's just true for everything. Like w- once an action has occurred, <laughs> creative or otherwise, it has occurred and it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean it can be reinterpreted by the audience either. So if you make a beautiful chocolate chip cookie and it's amazing and all the sugar is exactly where it should be and somebody says, I'm triggered by this, I'm hurt, this is insensitive you can look at it honestly and say, well, it is what it is. I wanted a molasses cookie. Right. Yeah, Yeah, I wanted this to be something other than what it was. And it's like, oh, well, that's on them, not on you. So it it does go both ways. Books are what they are, regardless of what the reader wants them to be. And they are what they are, regardless of what the author wants them to be too. Once they're out there, they are themselves. Mm -hmm. So, but as far as it goes for storytellers, parents who are telling stories, that way, Brian just said about um, misbehaving as a parent, or when you miss the mark as a parent, is an example of failing as a storyteller. You know, it's like you're you're failing in a scene. You've written a scene. You've written a scene of dialogue. You've written a scene in your life, and you just pooched it. It's a bad scene. Mm. Don't do it again. Edit it. Correct it. Mark it up with red. Yeah. Make it right and do better. So there's now a scene in your there's now a scene in your child's biography in which, well, when I was six, I dropped the gallon of milk and my mom called me fill in the blank. (laughs) (laughs) And that's now permanently part of their biography written in concrete that can never be reset. It's done. That moment's gone. It's done. Uh, And that's terrifying. Yep. So like- Stakes are way higher there. Yeah. Stakes are way higher. It's not a word doc that you can backspace. You just, God gives you all this wet concrete to work with and you just wrote your scene there. There's no edits, there's no editorial passes. Eesh. It's just you writing in stone. Yeah. Dialogue for the day, scenes for the day. I've often I've actually told people often that if you told any installation artist, any avant-garde psycho artist, like, "Hey, I'm going to give you a baby and you have 18 years to create a childhood for your installation and you're going to be like the number one influence and curator and everything for these immortal souls, you're the one." So, go, set the clock, here's a baby, create a childhood, create all the moments, create all the birthdays, all the holidays, everything, all the vacations, and all the in-between times, all the normal times, the mundane times, create it all. This is your, this is your MFA project for your, you know, really hoity-toity Ivy League- Art school. BFA. Art school. Go. It's, all of them would tap out. It's insane. That is an insane task and it's what God does to us all, where it's like, here are these people, go concrete setting on today. And Tuesday is done. And now, how, what are you going to do tomorrow? What are you going to do on Wednesday?
0: And it's it would be easy to, you know, be listening to this and think, well, yeah, don't snap at your kids. Don't do <laughs> not do the obvious mistakes. But if you come home and your kids are there, they want to play with you and you just watch TV or you decide to play video games and ignore them, they come up to you. If you just do the boring thing, that's also missing the mark.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And if you then fail to create the positively exactly. beautiful thing. Right. It's, also bad. At my, at my grandmother's funeral, my uncle described a moment in his eulogy. Really, I think he was, I don't know, six to eight years old. And he was, you know, school was canceled or something for snow and he was trying to get back and he was stuck in the driveway and he couldn't get up the driveway and he kept sliding back down. And so, he was failing to get to the front door and he was like near exhaustion. And she finally noticed that, <laughs> that he was out there skidding around the driveway, <laughs> unable to get to the front door, pulled him inside, stuck him in the bathtub, and left and then came back and floated a bowl of Fruit Loops in the water in front of him and that was like the thing that he talked about at her funeral. Wow. He was like this little, a bowl of Fruit Loops in the bath. Yeah. You know, it's like that's, there's so much,
1: you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great scene. Yeah, it's an amazing <laughs>
2: yeah. scene and it's the fact that he was, you know, middle-aged and eulogizing his elderly mother who had just passed on to heaven with that you know, that was the scene that stopped. Reminded, yeah, a cup of water to those who are perishing. Jesus' yeah. advice holds true. So it's not it's not just don't snap. It's also it doesn't mean just be innocuous. It don't be boring. Think about how to write good scenes every yeah. day. Yeah. yeah. Don't yeah. be an inaccurate reflection of your father in heaven where you're monotonous and boring when he's wildly interesting, when he's not failing to throw you sunsets
1: and daily and food. Daily. I've heard you talk about that with pets. You're yeah. a, you're a big you think it's a it's a high responsibility to, to perhaps provide pets? Yeah, I I love it. I think it's it's very much because <laughs> our father does. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's what he does, and so we are way over petted. I didn't grow up with a lot of pets, but uh, we have a lot of pets, or we have a different. We've let our kids keep bees. We've got a couple lizards. We've had gone through multiple snakes. We've got three dogs, two African tortoises that require their own barn, their own little miniature <laughs> barn. They're so big. Then it's like these are creatures that God's made and he gives us animals. It's fundamentally I think part of our design is how we relate to the created world and the animal kingdom. And my I cherish my kids' relationships with their dogs are hilarious. With each of these three dogs separately the personalities are so funny. 5 kids relating to three different dogs differently. So there's a bunch of different relationship <laughs> combinations there, right? And it's uh it's it really is funny it's not just about they need to learn responsibility picking up the dog poo it's like you know they need to actually like relate to and love these funny characters that exist in the world and have the opportunity to So we've got two geckos that are a little bit obese because they refuse to eat crickets they only eat mealworms so they they get they're pretty chubby uh, but their name is Speck and Cindy after the snakes and outlaws of time Dave the black-headed python is pretty awesome. And then Tasha and Rosalinda, the tortoises, who were, uh, well, they were acquired when my daughters were turning five and six. My daughters are now 16 and 17 and they're now, you know, 45 to 50 pound tortoises each. So, it's- It's insane. It's pretty hilarious. And then Dixie Mist, Molly Mack and Charlie Mack, who are characters from uh, Drowned Vault and Boys of Blur. So, the kid's going to laugh. Those are the dogs. What kind of dogs do you have? German short-haired pointers. High energy, high personality, hilarious. Uh, but all all this is just, and actually I had a conscious, my wife and I didn't have the house for dogs and our oldest was hitting sixth grade and we, I told her, it's like, this is the last chance for him to have had a dog when he was a kid, when he was a boy to actually relate to a dog in that way. Then as he hits his teen years and starts to grow, it's going to be very different. So let's, let's just go for it. So that there is a dog in his childhood, you know, that that's, that's where we anchored it. So yeah. And then once we started, we couldn't stop. And so now we have three. <laughs> There you go. But it's all, all, all of that is entirely motivated not by is it easy, and not by is it easy for us, but on um, the fact that we are creating biographies for these five people who will say, oh, when I was a kid, we, yeah. when I was a kid, mom and dad fill in the blank gave us or constantly said no or did what like what it what are, what belongs in those early chapters of those lives. So we're we're off on parenting now, but it's all the same thing. It's all storytelling.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, when you're, that feels like reading and writing comes out of character and that, it, yeah. and then the rest of life also comes from that same character. So if you end up never writing a scene in on paper, but your scene in your life is lived to the glory of God, you know, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And
2: if it's all, I mean, I think it's so easy to say, imagine early chapters of novel where it's like, dad was always, always came home tired, you know, because he, because he did, because he was working for you. Right. So dad always came home tired and he would kind of, you know, blob on the couch. Mm -hmm. Mom was always stressed out, you know, and those are good parents, hardworking dad, (laughs) like functional family. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a fun, you're a fully functional family. You have both parents. Yeah. You know, it's like, and you could be like, oh man, dad never had time for me. Mom was always snappy because she was trying to get something done. She's trying to be efficient as she should be, but she's trying to, she's putting efficiency above joy.
0: And these are just like everyday. Every day. This is everyday, which like makes me think of there there are authors and there are filmmakers that can write and make everyday scenes amazing. Yeah. And enjoyable. And it's it usually, you know, if you're beginning to write, you want to do something so dramatic and you're going to do a flashback and cut between time and all the fun dreams and gasmos. But if you can just write a good scene that's yeah. everyday life, like you really-
2: yeah, you, you've communicated reality, and people are sucked into it. And so they're going to absorb. If you're writing fantasy, they're going to absorb all sorts of wildness. If you can anchor people in concrete scenes that you can really feel, you don't even have to be, you know, launching into anything crazy in order to sell what's coming. Um, and you can also write drama and domestic, you know, domestic growth and coming of age stories, and that are not fantasy at all. Right. And if you write them well and concretely people experience them vicariously and they will become part of their permanent memories yeah.
1: so I think that this also maybe one last thing to touch on is the fact that writing writing well or living well doesn't often come down to some or never comes down to some key bit of knowledge that somebody has that you don't have. The cheat code. Right, yeah. yeah. If only someone would give me the key, I could write the novel or I could be the parent. Yep. Although there are a lot of keys I would give people that yeah, right. would help them, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which hence You will be given the keys you already thought you had, but uh, but all that to say, you know, there's a lot to be improved, but it's not... There's not a ring of power. Yeah, there's not a power. ring of power <laughs> that, that allows you to be the perfect mom. It's it's basic stuff like, oh, you know you need to have a likable character likable main character, you just didn't do the things that make your main character likable.
0: Right. That's actually a big mistake people make is trying to do the thing that no one has ever thought of or done before and thereby missing what everybody wants, which is just yeah. give me a character that, yeah. I, like. that I, I like. That I like. Give me, me somebody I like and I understand yeah. they're
2: real. That's a person. Yeah, right. They might be fictional but that's a real person.
0: Like, And they might, we might be familiar with that person in different places in our lives but that's okay because yeah. we know them. Right. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's even better.
1: And when uh, you try to dodge that you come up with some tortured soul that clearly is not real. It's a right. it's a product of the worst sorts of MFAs and no not one to can get, relate to not to get too pejorative. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So
2: d- no tortured soul stories. Don't write that with your life or with your words. But it's a I mean it really is a matter of constantly making the right decisions. So little ones, not giant big ones, little constant good small decisions. And when you're writing a novel, I think at one point I looked I looked at uh like the document history at how many keystrokes were involved and it was horrifyingly enormous. You know, it was millions and millions and millions of keystrokes that went into writing this novel, a multiple drafts. You know, like the total total document history, how many times I'd had to hit the keys. And then it suddenly made sense to me why there was a deep ditch in my space bar. You know that I've I've worn I've worn deep grooves into my keyboards. I've gone through multiple keyboards that I've worn out. You know, like stairs in an old cathedral where, you know, it's like where the monks all walk in the center and there's those dips. Those are on my keyboard. And there's so many miscues there, so many misstrokes, so many mistakes. And yet you're, you're constantly, you constantly keep moving in the same direction, keep moving towards the goal and constantly correcting. And the same thing's true in life. So, It's not about, man, what's the giant dramatic thing we have to do to make ourselves interesting. You know, it's not, how do I make myself Byron? How do I make myself this larger than life character that goes down in history? It's how do you pull your kid in and float a bowl of Froot Loops in front of them? How do you be the fun parents? Like, it's not hard, you know how do you yell jammy ride like my parents used to do? And we'd all jump out of bed in our pajamas and run to the car screaming and go out for ice cream in our pajamas. We've
1: we've added that thanks to you guys and it can confirm that it's- It goes big. It goes (laughs) over (laughs) big.
2: It's like, we're doing, instead of bed, we're having some ice cream tonight. It's like, what? It's amazing. It's like, and if you do it every
1: night, then it's like, whatever. Yeah. And the failure thing you're talking about, dropping the milk, freak out at your kid. Yeah. Well, the good news is your kid's going to spill something again. Yep. So, you, you get have to rewrite that scene. <laughs> yep. And so, it's, it's like driving to Miami where you could die
2: at, with a bad mistake any given foot. You know, in any given five seconds, you could ruin your life and everybody's lives around you. It's just constant good decisions. It's like, you know, extended faithfulness over time and also like habituating good decisions and habituating joy and habituating that one direction so that we're still going to Miami. I haven't veered off the road. You know, it's like there's, you can veer off the highway at any moment and just careen into the ditch. And that shouldn't be terrifying to you. You know, it's like, that's, you know, it's it's
1: possible. Sounds a bit of a downer when you put it like that, but but I guess it's it's true. but (laughs) but
2: But it's what makes basic domestic stories still interesting. The stakes are always existential. The stakes are always huge. They're always permanent. So even when you're writing just a day, Today is just a day. The stakes are still life and death. the The stakes are still faithfulness, unfaithfulness. No matter what, in every moment of dialogue that you have, and every moment of dialogue your character has, everything could go wrong. Everything could go off the rails, and that keeps that keeps the tension going. It keeps the narrative going. It's what makes life a good story. It, it's what makes even mundane days good stories. And it, you know, God's infinite attention span is significantly more capable than ours of caring about all the mundane in between. We symbolize it with short scenes in books or short scenes in films, but we don't do like one day after the next the way he does, just because his, his consumption tolerance is a little bit higher, higher than ours. Yeah. So. A little bit. Just, just a touch. <laughs> just a touch. Think like a storyteller. If you never write a novel ever, still try to think like a storyteller. Try to think like a creator of narratives, a creator of dialogue, a creator of childhoods in your own life. Because you are. Because you are. And we're talking like we're only talking to parents, but if you if you aren't a parent, it still exists in all your relationships. Yeah. People around you,
1: neighbors. Every day. Brothers. Co-workers. Father, mother. Yeah. Father. Yeah. Definitely. Yep. All the things. It's all permanent. Don't screw up. Yep. <laughs> Trash can rule though. It's okay yeah. to screw up. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> just throw it away quickly. Throw it away quickly. If you just, just screw up, throw it
2: away quickly. Get that car back out of the yeah. ditch
1: quickly if you can. Yeah. Well, there you go. I think that's three rules that we went through. We're out. Concluded. Thanks Thank for having you. Me.
2: Thanks, Jess. Yeah, thanks for coming, Jess. Apply now. CamperdownMFA. What was it? Calm. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to this week's Stories
0: or Soul Food podcast. Before you go, if we could ask a favor of you to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, those help us greatly to get the podcast places that we couldn't before. So please leave a rating and a review. Cheers.